All right. Will you open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13? It's good to be with all of you. Glad to see you here. Uh, the leaders prayed specifically this morning that God would give extra blessing to everybody who came. Uh, so look for God's blessing. <clears throat> we asked for extra for you. It's easy not to come this morning. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14, the church's heart from God. Uh, I mean, this is a wonderful passage. I, I expect God will, will, will bless us through this and speak to us. There's a lot of really good stuff here. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14. We've spent about this last six months working through 2 Corinthians, and we've seen overall, to summarize, that the church in Corinth is a mess. Right from and and we see that all the way back from First Corinthians. We see it running through here. The church in Corinth is a mess. There's unrepentant impurity and sexual immorality that the church is refusing to deal with. There's a host of quarrelsome sins among them, like jealousy, slander, gossip, arrogance, hostility. And then on top of all that, they're on the verge of rejecting the Apostle Paul and his teachings. Excuse me. They're trying to follow these false teachers, and things are just, things are a mess. And Paul has lots of instruction for them, lots of correction, lots of teaching, and explanation, exhortation to try to straighten them out as he continues just bearing with them with the utmost patience of an apostle. He said his patience with them was part of his apostleship as he just continues to love them despite their rebelliousness. So there's a lot of stuff that the Corinthians need to understand. There's a lot that they need to do. But as Paul wraps up his letter, he scales it back to the big picture, to the overall character of the church, uh, to the church's heart from God that undergirds all of this. So there's been a lot of really specific instruction. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to work on this. Stop doing that. Right? But now he's going to scale it back to just the, the big picture heart of the church. Who is the church supposed to be? And we see a lot here, who are we supposed to be as the church? What's the heart of the church? What are we all about? Having dealt with really specific sins here and there and issues, now let's scale back and just what's the church? Who are we? What are we supposed to be being and doing? And so he gives us these six exhortations that sum up what the Corinthians need to see and focus on and do as the church. And then he concludes by blessing them with this beautiful Trinitarian blessing where he's speaking God's own goodness over them. And God's own goodness is the source of any goodness in us. Amen. So he's calling them, he's exhorting them to these six things, and then he's just speaking God's goodness right into them. Um, and so it is with us. And so we're going to get some great exhortations, some big picture stuff on what it looks like to be the church, and then we will just hear God's word speak God's blessing into us. So let's read 2 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14 as we wrap up this book. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. So there it is. We wrap up the book with this brief list of exhortations and blessings. So we'll just walk through them one at a time. Six exhortations that get at the heart of what it is to be the church of God. And he begins, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. There's a lot to be upset about in Corinth. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of ways to react to all of that. I mean, the last section we were just in was Paul threatening to come and use his authority with severity against them. But with the conclusion, finally, brothers, rejoice. And so it is in life in general, isn't it? There's a lot to worry about, there's a lot to grieve. There's a lot to lament. There's a lot to we might complain or grumble about. And yet, we are Christians. 
that we are called to something different. We are called and, in fact, commanded to rejoice, always. Sometimes, by listening to people's lives, you might think the Bible instructed us to grumble, always, in all circumstances, to complain. But no, we're called to rejoice, always, in all circumstances, to find to count, to find a way to count it all joy. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So often people lose sleep over what's God's will for my life. Here it is. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know God's will for your life here, just start there. And when you finish getting that one nailed down, then you can start asking about other things. Your Father's will is that you rejoice always. Now I want you to imagine a painting. Imagine you've gone to a museum and they've got, um, they've got a display of a of painting, it's a series of paintings of great saints throughout the history of the church. Wonderful Christians. Uh, just close your eyes and imagine it. There's a painting of the Apostle Paul or Peter. There's, you know, Spurgeon. There's Augustine and Calvin. And we've got these wonderful saints down through the ages. What's their facial expression? I think there's a tendency to look at piety, at faithfulness, as characterized by maybe even a gloomy face. In your imagination, was, was their brow furrowed? Did they have a look of consternation or sadness, disappointment or concern? Now, surely there is sadness and hardship in the Christian life. But Jesus said that if you're fasting, if you're embracing the hardship of the Christian life, you're leaning into that, you should not look gloomy like the hypocrites, but you are to anoint your head and wash your face so that you look fresh. The face of the Christian life is one of rejoicing, as we are commanded. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it's not a glib, false, bubbly, naive silliness. Paul said that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But what the face of Christianity is, is eyes open, aware of the hardship, knowing the danger and the seriousness of life, and yet walking through it steadfastly with joy, with rejoicing, with thankfulness in all things. Singing and laughing, making melody in your hearts to God. Because we are in Christ Jesus who was crucified to take the sting out of death so that even hardship, weakness, calamities, insults, sickness, and death now have to serve us and our salvation and victory and triumph through Christ Jesus. Amen? Because of the work of Christ, even death serves your ultimate joy. And so we can rejoice always in all circumstances. One of my favorite authors of all time is Thomas Watson. He was a great Puritan. Listen to what he says about the importance of rejoicing always. Let me tell you, it is a sin not to rejoice. You disparage your husband, Christ. When a wife is always sighing and weeping, what will others say? This woman has a bad husband. Is this the fruit of Christ's love to you? to reflect dishonor upon him. A melancholy spouse saddens Christ's heart. I do not deny that Christians should grieve for sins of daily occurrence, but to be always weeping as if they mourned without hope is dishonorable to the marriage relationship. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoicing brings credit to your husband. Christ loves a cheerful bride, and indeed the very purpose of God's making us sad is to make us rejoice. We sow in tears so that we may reap in joy. The excessive sadness and contrition of the godly 
will make others afraid to embrace Christ. They will begin to question whether there is that satisfactory joy in religion which is claimed. It is joy that puts liveliness and activity into a Christian. The joy of the Lord is your strength, said Nehemiah. The soul is swiftest in duty when it is carried on the wings of joy. That's Thomas Watson. But as Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Do you have it good in Christ Jesus? Regardless of your life circumstances, you who are in Christ, do you have it good? Does your countenance and your demeanor reflect that? Does it demonstrate it? So the Corinthians need to learn to rejoice in Christ Jesus. They're questioning, they're doubting the apostle, they're quarreling and boasting, and what they need to be doing is rejoicing in all that God has done for them, giving thanks. But how about us? Do you need to learn to rejoice? What's your default disposition of soul? Complaining, lamenting, proud boasting, resignation, anger, irritation, quarreling, disappointment, huffiness, discontentment. What's your default disposition? Or do you resolve to bring your heart back to rejoicing giving thanks to God in all circumstances. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to God. We are loved and accepted into heaven. We have everlasting life. Hardships serve our good. All things are ours in Christ Jesus. We are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Not to mention a million earthly daily blessings. We live in a beautiful place. We have abundance. We have a good church that loves us and on and on and on and on. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Train yourself to rejoice. Smile and laugh and give thanks to God. May God increase our joy for his glory and the good of others and our enjoyment. Amen. Secondly, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to aim for restoration. Finally, brothers, rejoice and aim for restoration. He told them a few verses back in 13.9 that their restoration same idea is what he prays for. So I pray for your restoration. He prays for it for them and they should aim for it. Their aim should be restoration, to be made whole, to be made complete as a body. Paul wants them to be restored to one another and to him. And they need to want this for themselves. They need to aim for restoration, to be whole, not to continue quarreling and in factions and set against the apostle. But they need to aim to be restored. There were divisions in the church in Corinth fed by gossip and quarrels and slander and hostility and the church was not whole. It was not united. They were not thriving. And did they want that to be resolved? Did they aim for restoration even when they didn't have it? Or was that part of the game they play, their default mode? Sometimes a community, a community can settle into these you just get used to stuff. You know, you get used to ways of dealing and patterns of life. And maybe the Corinthians had just fallen into this default pattern of life of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and dissensions and divisions and rivalries. But Paul is calling them to aim for restoration. It doesn't have to stay there. We live in the grace of God and there's always a path out of our sin into restoration. Some people just want to quarrel. Some people want to complain and tear other people down, but it's not fitting behavior in the church. A body that doesn't aim for its own wholeness is not going to make it. Just like a physical body that's turned on itself, where the immune system begins attacking itself, that body is in major trouble and it needs to be healed. It needs to be changed towards restoration, towards completeness. And so it is with the church. So how about you? Do you aim for restoration? Do you seek the unity and the wholeness and the thriving of the body of Christ? Or do you pick at it? Do you look for grievances? Do you sit in judgment over your brothers and sisters? Do you want to be at odds or do you want to be in good fellowship? And do you see your role in all of that as active? Your role in the restoration of the body as active? Do you actively work to get over stuff, 
to overlook transgressions, to let love cover a multitude of sins? Do you actively humble yourself, apologize when you wrong others, forgive one another, bear with one another in love, refuse to sit and feel sorry for yourself and lick your wounds? Do you actively seek to be in good fellowship with others, to be at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you? Seek this from God. Pursue it in your home and in the church. What a joyful way to live as we seek it in Christ. How eager will God be to give us that good gift when we ask him for it? When we say, I want to be a person who seeks restoration in all things. And then we ask God to do that in us. How ready do you think God is to answer? If you ask God for bread, will he give you a stone? And if you ask God to make you a person who more regularly rejoices and seeks restoration in the church, will he give you that gift? Amen. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. The word Paul uses here for comfort one another is related to the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit whom he would send, the comforter. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going away, but I will send you a comforter, a paraclete. It literally means to call beside. Now, okay, look, most of you have the ESV. Look at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, and then look at your little footnote. There's a little number, probably a number two, so it might has. Comfort one another or listen to my appeal. Comfort one another or listen to my appeal. Well, which is it? Is he calling them to comfort one another or to listen to his appeal? And what, what's going on that it would mean either one of those two things? So let's just consider this for a second so we get it right. And it's because the verb here, which means, remember the word means to call beside. It's in the passive voice. And so it means either be called alongside or kind of reflexively call yourselves alongside. Be called alongside or call yourselves alongside. That's kind of literally what the Greek word means here. So he's either telling them, be called alongside me, I think. is That's the idea if it's listen to my appeal. Be called alongside. Like, let me call you out of what you're doing into something better. Listen to my appeal. Or if it's be called to each other's side, it would be like comfort one another. Okay, call yourselves alongside. Could be the, how the passive is translated. Call yourselves alongside each other. Comfort one another. Come alongside. But the main point is clear, isn't it? Whether he's calling them, um, the, you know, the ESV goes with comfort one another, assuming it's be a people who are called alongside one another, who show up to each other as comforters. So the main point is clear either way. And it's related to the last exhortation. We should be seeking to stand beside one another. Be called alongside. We should be a people who stand beside each other. Whether they're standing beside Paul or whether they're standing by, beside one another. We should be like God the Holy Spirit who comes as the comforter. Who comes and is called beside us and who stands beside us and advocates for us. The Corinthians, though, are largely pitted against each other tearing at Paul, tearing at one another, not standing beside each other, not strengthening each other and comforting one another and encouraging each other. But we stand beside one another. Paul's calling them to it. We strengthen each other. We are loyal to one another. We have each other's back. We stand side by side. We speak on each other's behalf. This is exactly what the Corinthians need to do. Rather than turn on Paul and divide themselves up and engage in quarrelsome sins and always against each other, they need to be called alongside Paul and alongside one another as one body. <clears throat> so how about you? Do you comfort one another? Do you comfort others? Do you seek to comfort your brothers and sisters? Do you seek to come beside them and strengthen them in their need? Are you loyal to them? Do you stand beside your brothers and sisters? Do you have their back? And do they know that you do? Are you the kind of person that if your brother's in trouble, they know that you will watch out for them, that you will be with them? Do you go to them when they need your strength? And do you uphold them? When one member suffers in the body, in the church, do you suffer along with them as a member of the body? 
as the scripture says, when one, that's how it truly is in the body. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. Do you experience that? Do you move towards God's people in their need? Or do you hide from it? Think about how God stands by you. In your greatest need, when you didn't deserve it at all, God came and stood by you. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. When we call upon God, he comes to us and he stands by us and he strengthens us. And the father sent the son into the world to come and to stand beside us and to strengthen us and to comfort us. And then when he left, he said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a comforter who will go and be with you always. And so right now, God is with us to stand beside us and to comfort and to strengthen us. And he uses us, the Holy Spirit, in each other to do that for each other. And so we should do for one another as Jesus says. And Jesus said that when we, when we serve the least of these, his brothers, we are doing it for him. He accounts it as though we had done it to Jesus. So this really helps me when I'm feeling grumbly about needing to go help somebody and I don't really have time or I don't really feel like doing it, but I need to go help somebody and I'm struggling with it in my heart. I think, what if Jesus called and said, I need you to come help me? What would you do? If Jesus called you and said, I'm in need, what would you do? And how quickly would you go? And how joyfully would you go? It's Jesus. Yes, I will, I'll do whatever. He says, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers. Look, Jesus isn't going to have a need for you, right? God says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus doesn't have needs. He is Lord of all the universe. He is exalted in the heavens. And yet you serve him by serving your brothers and sisters, other Christians specifically. When you serve them, Jesus counts it as you serving what motivation that provides for us to do this, to comfort one another. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, and agree with one another. This is the fourth exhortation. Agree with one another. It literally reads, think the same thing. Agree with one another. Think the same thing. Be of one mind. The Corinthians, as we've said, are divided. So many of our actions and our behaviors come from how we're thinking and what we're believing. You believe a way, you think a way, and then you act in light of that. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be of one mind, to agree with each other, to think the same things, and that will begin in many ways to heal the divisions that are. I thought we were going to get an impromptu candlelight service. Maybe, you never know. Uh, that's fun. Think the same way. Be of one mind. Agree with one another. As Christians, we should seek unity of mind. And that begins with doctrine. Seeking unity of mind begins with doctrine, with knowing and understanding and believing everything the scripture says. There will be places where we disagree, where we see doctrines differently, but we should be working on those differences. We should be addressing them and working towards unity of mind. We should be trying to persuade each other where we see things differently, and we should be open to being persuaded by the word of God. We should seek unity of mind. Think the same way. I do think there's an area where we need to be careful here and that's in matters of taste or preference or opinion. We're called to think the same way, to be of one mind. That's rooted in doctrine. That's where it all begins. But be, as we seek one mind and to agree with one another, and we should all try to ground all of our thinking in the wisdom of God in the Bible, the Bible does tell us that some things are matters of preference. And each person should be fully convinced in his own mind in those areas. So you should have your opinions and you should say your opinions, but you should accept one another not to quarrel over opinions. So let me read how Paul talks about this in Romans 14, 1 to 13. As we seek unity of mind, 
it doesn't mean that our that your opinions are law towards others or that my opinions are law towards others and we make room for each other on these kinds of differences so listen to Romans 14 1 to 13 as for the one who's weak in faith welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So, seek the same mind. Try to think the same things. But that doesn't mean that you try to go around forcing all of your random opinions on everybody else. Don't quarrel over opinions. We're commanded. Don't judge and despise one another over differences on things that are indifferent. If you have a scruple that goes beyond the Bible, something you didn't, that the Bible didn't command you, but you just I don't do that. It's an opinion of mine, something I stay away from. If you have a scruple that goes beyond the Bible, don't make it a standard of judging others. Let them stand before God, knowing that his word is sufficient to guide and to judge them. He says, don't judge. Don't judge and don't despise. Okay, there's two ways that this happens. So if you have extra biblical scruples, you're not supposed to judge others by those. You just leave them alone. And you're not to despise. If you see a brother with a scruple that goes beyond the Bible, don't despise him for the weakness of his conscience, but make room for him. And don't push him to sin against his conscience but also don't let the good be spoken of as evil. So you don't despise those who have weaker consciences. All right, so how about you? Think the same as one another. Are you aiming to agree with the church? Are you striving for one mind with the body of Christ, with your brothers and sisters? There are some people who are always contrary, right? Always thinking that we know better than everybody else. Is that you? Do you listen to other people? Are you slow to speak and quick to listen? Are you humble and teachable? Also, are you working on your doctrine? Are you working to study to know God's word so that you can conform all your thinking to him? It's one of the things that we're trying to do in Sunday school. We're doing a class on doctrine right now where we're looking at a historic confession of the faith, the London Baptist confession, and then weighing it according to the Bible. But one of the things that reading and studying theology does is it helps us to see how the church through the ages has understood the scriptures and then seek to align ourselves with that so long as it lines up with scripture. We always test it, but it's a helpful way to seek to align ourselves with the church to think the same things. We're always testing it by the scripture. That's our ultimate standard of unity. But this brings us to a unity of mind with the church when we study the creeds that the church has believed down through the ages. Like, do we agree with the church? Or do I think I know better than the church over the last 2,000 years has kind of agreed on? But I read this passage and I spent a solid five minutes thinking about it. And therefore I know more. Okay? Doesn't mean the creeds can never err. We test them always by the Bible. But they're a very helpful tool in pursuing this one mind that we have together as the church. I had like a little exhortation here about 
Like if you're not coming to Sunday school, but I think basically all of you were at Sunday school this morning. We're a pretty small group this morning. Um, but it's one of the benefits of coming to Sunday school and learning, working together on one mind. Fifthly, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to live in peace. So 2 Corinthians, I mean, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 11. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live at peace. This last exhortation is related to the previous one, and this one comes with a promise. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The Bible calls us, commands us to seek peace, to pursue peace. Paul's been willing to do plenty of battle throughout this very letter, hasn't he? But the aim of that battle is peace. Like with Jesus, who said he came not to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus is cutting humanity in half with that sword between those who know and love him and are born again, and those who don't and who are against him. But why is Jesus bringing that sword to divide humanity in half? In order to purify a people for himself. So that within his people, there can be true peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. God has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. You see how much God has done to make peace. Think about how much mercy God has shown to you to be at peace with you. How much grace God has given. How many of your sins God has overlooked and dealt with in the cross in order to make peace with you. So we should pursue peace. We should live in peace. As God and Christ has forgiven us, so we also must forgive one another. We are Christians, and we are to be at peace with one another. As much as it depends on you, Paul says, be at peace with all men. You can't always ensure that nobody will have beef with you, but as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Listen to how Paul develops this in Colossians 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Live in peace. And as we do this, Paul says, the God of love and peace will be with us. Where there's selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, where there's resentment and quarrels, gossip and slander, we see the work and the realm of Satan. But where we see peace and love reigning, true peace, there we see the kingdom of God at work. Of course, we don't earn our salvation by being peaceful enough, but within our justification, which is on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, within that, God tells us here that he delights to reward what he has given to us by drawing near as the God of love and peace when his people pursue peace. Do you want the presence of the God of love and peace? with you in the midst of our church, then pursue peace, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So how about you? Do you live in peace? Do you seek quarrels? Do you find yourself constantly embroiled in controversy or conflict, complaints and problems? If so, then you really need to stop and ask yourself if you're the common denominator in all of those quarrels. Because usually people who are contentious don't admit it to themselves that they're the problem, right? 
It's always that everybody else is so terrible. I wouldn't be so contentious if you all weren't so horrible all the time. I wouldn't have to contend with all of you. I say that jokingly. But if you're regularly in conflict and drama with others, you really need to examine yourself honestly and ask if it's you. Are you the problem? Are you living in peace? And if not, repent and receive the grace of God and forgiveness and help to walk in the fruit of his Holy Spirit, one of which is peace. All right. Lastly, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we're not Gnostics who believe that only invisible realities are true and good, that physical things are bad and it's just the hidden person of the heart that is all that matters. So it's not enough to greet your brothers in the secret place of your heart. Paul calls for a very outward and physical expression of greeting in a holy kiss. The Corinthians are at odds with one another, things are strained, and it would do them a world of good to greet each other with real affection. It's hard to kiss someone you're mad at, isn't it? Ever try to kiss your spouse while you're in the midst of a fight? It's hard to hug somebody you're mad at. It's hard to shake hands with somebody that you're mad at. It can be hard to look someone in the eye that you're mad at. And so often when people are at odds with one another, they avoid each other. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been at odds with somebody at church? So you take the long path around the chairs to avoid bumping into them, to avoid having to see them or greet them? Paul wants the Corinthians to work right through their contention and give each other a kiss, a holy kiss. And giving affection to someone can actually help to thaw hostility. Have you ever been mad at somebody and nursed it in your mind into something, but then you were forced to to deal with them in person and to see them, and then that hostility started to diminish a little bit? The anger started to thaw? How much more if you greet them warmly does it begin the process of thawing out? But sometimes we don't want that thaw to happen, right? Because we want to stay mad. I'm mad and I want to be mad and I've been nursing this anger. I've been working on it. And if I have to go and see that person and face them and see them as a real person, then it might start to lose some of that anger that I've really nursed and grown. I think that's part of why we avoid people we're mad at. We don't want to look them in the eye because we're not ready to drop the grudge or the quarrel. But since we're commanded to be at peace, we have to avoid that temptation and face our brothers and sisters head on, even if things are strained. Actually, especially if things are strained. So if you're mad at someone, you have a quarrel with someone in the church, instead of going out of your way to avoid them, taking the long way around the chair when you see them coming, instead, go out of your way towards them. Smile at them. Greet them warmly. So what about us? How do we apply this exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss? Let's just say up front, it would be easier not to touch this one, right? But we're committed to working through the Bible and everything it says, line by line, precept by precept. So we look to God for his wisdom and let him set the conversation. So we'll just deal with it head on. I think there's an impulse today right off the bat. This isn't a practice that's widely practiced in the church today, right? greeting one another with a holy kiss. I didn't see a single one of you, not a single one of you greeted me with a holy kiss this morning. Oh, all right, one. And I think there's an impulse today right off the bat to say like, this is uncomfortable. This is way culturally weird in our time and our place. And surely we just, we don't need to do this. And I get it. I come from a people who are not deeply physically affectionate, who don't even hug very often. But I think we always need to be really careful of avoiding biblical instruction, dismissing it as merely cultural, as though the instruction in the Bible is merely a product of first century Jewish culture or first century Roman culture. Like, well, of course, you know, the Jewish people did this, but that's a different culture than ours. And so it doesn't really apply to us. But this isn't merely a cultural book, right? The exhortations, the teachings of scripture are not merely the applications of first century Jewish culture to us. This is the eternal word of God. So what do we do with it? What do we do with verse 13 or verse 12? 
think obviously we apply the principle. Obviously. We'll start there. Which is that our brotherly love for each other should have holy outward expressions. We shouldn't just keep it in the hidden place of our hearts. Handshakes are an example of outward physical greetings that feel more normal to us. So certainly greet one another with a holy handshake. Hugs are an example of outward physical greetings that feel more normal to us. So certainly, greet one another with a holy hug. And these things are good, and we should exchange these things with one another. We should greet one another outwardly. But we need to acknowledge, we do just need to acknowledge that the passage doesn't say to greet with a holy handshake or a holy hug, and that that's not an accident. Like, they knew about hugs back in the day. They knew about handshakes. But this says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this isn't a romantic kiss. It's probably not a kiss on the lips. It's not a a romantically intimate kiss, but it's more of a fatherly or brotherly kiss. As an example, I kiss my sons on the top of the head when I bless them. Every night, I put my hand on the head of my sons, I bless them, and then I grab their head and I kiss the top of their head as a kind of seal of the blessing. It's not a Joe Biden sniffing the hair, people are cringing away kind of kiss. That's the last thing we need to be doing, right? And we find ourselves in the midst of a culture with so much confusion on intimacy and sexuality and a whole host of creeping and real problems of sexual abuse that we would have to just be really, really careful and really deliberate and very wise about giving a holy kiss in our context, where it is culturally very weird and can easily send the wrong signal. Like it's just, we have to, well, it's not, we're not just bound by the cultural differences, neither should we just pretend they don't exist. We would need to navigate them if you were to go and try to give a brother a holy kiss. So my best wisdom on what do we do with this passage that just says, greet one another with a holy kiss. At this point, my exhortation is we should be conforming our thinking to the Bible on this as the church at large. Like we should be facing these kinds of verses, thinking about them, trying to get our heads around them at very least. It's something that would probably change, that should probably change corporately and culturally. And because of that, I think slowly, not just by one random dude who's kind of creepy going around kissing everybody, especially the women. You've seen, if you met that guy. Okay. In the early church, they did this, usually at communion, and the men would give a holy kiss to the men, and the women would give a holy kiss to the women. That's how this played out in the church historically. And while we always want to be conforming ourselves to the scripture, I think we should be mindful of our times. Honestly, I think this feels like a terrible time in history to kind of make this like the thing we champion. Like, now we're going to start championing Everybody's kissing everybody. So I think hearing it, thinking about it, not dismissing it are some good steps for the church in our day. Greeting one another, doing it with warmth and friendliness. And I think working on change on this, working towards this corporately and culturally, adjusting cultural expectations slowly towards that, I think um, is the pastoral advice I would give on the application of this verse at this time. And while Paul's on this topic of greeting each other with a holy kiss, he sends greetings from all the saints in verse 13. All the saints greet you. Greet each other with a holy kiss and all the saints greet you. Because we're connected not just to each other in the local church, but to the universal church more broadly and around the world. We are a family. We are one body. We are the people of Christ indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And when you encounter a Christian in your daily life, you should greet them warmly because they are your brother or sister. <clears throat> and so Paul sends greetings from the other churches. All the saints greet you. We should be a people who greet one another with obvious warmth and love. All right. So those are the exhortations. And that brings us to the last verse, which is the blessing. The triune God blesses us with everything we need. And this is the last verse of the book, verse 14. He concludes his letter by speaking a blessing over the Corinthians. Now, what's a blessing? A blessing is more than an empty wish 
or a nice sentiment. It's kind of like a prayer, but it's different than a prayer in that it's spoken not to God, but to the person and offered in faith that God will uphold it, right? Notice it's not, God, will you please give them the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is addressed to the people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's kind of like a prayer, but it's spoken to the person and it's offered in faith that God will uphold it. There's really a lot of faith in speaking a blessing over someone. You're speaking not to God, but to them in a way that indicates you expect God to stand behind it. Consider Isaac accidentally blessing his son Jacob instead of Esau, and then not just taking it back and being like, oh, whoops, wrong son, never mind, I'll just do it again. But he doesn't do that because he believes there's something powerful going on. He blesses his son, and then his other son comes, he goes, sorry, I mean, I already gave the blessing. See the faith that he has that God will uphold the words that he has spoken. If he just thought of it as a vague or general wish, he would just take it back or just give more of the same. But he acted as though he believed that God would honor it, that blessing that he had spoken by faith in God's promise. And so Paul concludes by speaking blessing over the Corinthians. His blessing is Trinitarian. Blessing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons, each of whom are fully God and engage with us in unique ways. So in Sunday school right now, as I mentioned, we're going over the 1689 London Baptist Confession and we're on the section of the Trinity right now. We covered it this morning. And that section concludes by saying, this truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. Do you think of the doctrine of the Trinity as more than just kind of a lofty intellectual thing and God's one and he's three and how does that all work? But do you see the truth of the Trinity as the foundation of all of your fellowship with God and comforting dependence on him? John Owen actually has a whole book, which you can check out from press or library back there, on how our fellowship with God is is uniquely with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. God the Father loves us and has chosen us in his love before the foundation of the world. Ephesians says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God the Father has loved us and purposed our salvation and predestined us for adoption into his family. God, the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Great I Am, the Everlasting Father loves you as his own dear child. Receive that love by faith and rejoice. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, I take it he's referring to the Father there, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you know the love of the Father? Do you rest and receive the love of your heavenly Father for you. Next, this refers to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, brings grace to us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Jesus brings grace to us through the gospel. This is his unique work. The death of Jesus on the cross, the Father didn't die on the cross for your sins. The Son did that. The Father purposed it and planned it in his love for you, and sent the Son. The Son came and died for you to bring the grace of God to you. It is the pardon for all of our sins, the forgiveness for all our debts to heaven, the extension of the kind favor of God to you, and the grace of Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the one who died for your sins, is gracious towards you. Receive that by faith and rejoice. God, the Holy Spirit, brings us fellowship as he comes and indwells us. It says the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Father purposes our salvation in his love. The Son accomplishes our salvation in his work, bringing us the grace of God. And the Spirit applies our salvation by coming to us, regenerating us, 
making us to be born again and then indwelling us with the very presence of God so that our fellowship is with God himself. It's with one another in the church like we've been seeing in all these exhortations, but the fellowship is also with God himself. And God is here, present, right now. And the Holy Spirit is bringing the presence of God right into this room, right now, right with you. And when you go, he goes with you. Receive the fellowship of the Holy Spirit by faith and rejoice. And so Paul blesses the whole church in Corinth with that blessing. The love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are riches beyond comparison. And these are the ultimate source of all the unity and peace that he's exhorting the church to. As they're filled, as we're filled with the love of God and the grace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we will abound in all of these good works and rejoicing in peace and agreeing with one another. These things abound as the grace and the love and the fellowship of God abound in us. They are the source of these things. We can love one another because the Father loves us. We can be gracious with one another because God has been gracious to us in Christ Jesus. We can have true fellowship with each other because the Holy Spirit is bringing the fellowship of God and uniting us together as one body. And so to you, Gospel Church, may God the Father pour out his love upon you in all of its fullness. The love which he says surpasses all understanding. May today he pour out his love into your heart. And today, Gospel Church, may God the Son overflow in grace towards you, forgiving all your sins and shining all of his favor on you today again this morning. And Gospel Church, may today the Holy Spirit fellowship with you bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, bringing the presence of God into your daily life and causing you to overflow with the fruits of the spirit and with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life and in our church. May God fellowship with you in the Holy Spirit today. What riches of kindness God has lavished on us. Let's receive it with faith. Let's go to him now and give thanks for it.